But when someone is complicit in white supremacy and they don't want to recognize it and all they do is create harm for you and then you have these like little sweet moments where they're fun and they go to brunch with you, that's not enough. Every relationship needs to be analyzed on the basis of like having an equal partnership. And if you don't feel like you have an equal partnership with someone, that's not a partnership. You got to drop it. Hi, I'm Ankita Verma, and you're listening to Gen BIPOC. Gen BIPOC is a podcast where I talk to young people who identify as Black, Indigenous, or people of color about their lives, dreams, and vulnerabilities. In this episode, I chat with my friend Asma. She's known in the Twin Cities for her tweets, the time she spends coordinating mutual aid, and calling out politicians. Before we hear from Asma, I want to issue a content warning that we start discussing sexual violence about 13 minutes into the show. If you'd like to skip this part, fast forward to around 18 minutes to listen to the rest of the episode. We cover such a wide range of topics, but always come back to the importance of community. Here's Asma to share her story and discuss what community means to her. My name is Asma Muhammad Nizami. In my day job, I am the advocacy director at Reviving the Islamic Sisterhood for Empowerment. Um, I work specifically with Muslim women. Prior to that, I was an educator, and I consider myself still kind of an educator in some ways. And then, what else about me? Uh, I got married during the pandemic. It was really <laughs> weird. We had a driveway or drive-by parade thing, and I drink a lot of Diet Coke. And I hate Jacob Fry. That was a beautiful trifecta of fun facts about you. Thank you. I also want to say that the photos from your drive-by wedding looked beautiful. Oh, thanks. Another thing that I just, we just have to start off on this note, but I so clearly remember the first time I met you, I was sitting at my desk at the Senate, right in front of Senator Pappas's office. And you came by because you wanted her to author the bill to end statutes of limitations for sexual assault. And you were like, it's Ankita, right? And I was like, yeah. I remember this. I remember And you go, so what do do they say here? I bet they say it wrong. And I was like, yeah. (laughs) And you just rolled your eyes and you were like, I hope you're correcting them. And I wasn't at that point, but I like, and I'm still working on it, but you were like the catalyst to me being like, wait, like she works in this advocacy, political government sphere and she can say it. And so it, it was just like the first time someone was like, say your name right (laughs) that makes me so happy you know what's so funny is part of why I mean I make like you're younger than me and so any brown girl any like any girl any honestly any girls that I see I so and also as a teacher anytime I see people and I'm like if you need me I'm here I can be that big (laughs) and I wish when I was working in campaign people called me Ozma and asthma and all of these different things and I would always correct them even like the really annoying politicians um, mm-hmm. that I know and like, you know, despise now more than ever, they say my name wrong and I would correct them. And everyone was like, wow, you're so aggressive when you correct people. And I was like, it's my freaking name. That's the mm-hmm. very least you can do. You can get my name right. So when I saw you, I was like thinking, because I remember, I think I was with my friend and she was like, oh, I think her name is Ankita. And I was like, no, it's not Ankita. <laughs> it's Ankita. <laughs> so yeah. You knew. I knew. I knew. So I wanted to make sure that like you knew someone can get it right and to remind you that your parents gave you a beautiful freaking name and you deserve to celebrate it. Thank you. And I, I do remember you saying that people called you asthma and I was like, asthma is something you have, not something you call a person. The worst part is I really do have asthma. <laughs> so The duality terrible just like a curse I mean I love my name but like the fact that the name that they get yeah whatever (laughs) things happen so I really appreciate hearing that you are someone who's been a mentor to younger women especially Muslim women and it sounds like you do a lot of that sort of work at Reviving Sisterhood as well so can you talk a little bit about what you do in your personal life and your paid job that works to amplify and empower Muslim women? 
Yeah. So I think my favorite part of my job is that I work with Como Park High School to because so essentially what happened is a couple of years ago at Como Park High School in St. Paul, there was a hate crime against Muslim girls there. And some girls had their hijabs ripped off. They were consistently like throughout, not just during that time, but called slurs because they're Muslim, because they're Somali. So it was like this anti-blackness and Islamophobia put together. And um, Chantal Allen, who's now on the school board there, talked to me about it and said, we need someone. I trust you. Can you come through for my girls? And I said, absolutely. <clears throat> so I started going in to Como Park and um, the girls really didn't know what to expect. And I had been an educator, so I had some ideas. But we started out with them being like, Ugh, but also really surprised to see another hijabi and in, in a leadership role. And not, you know, they have some paraprofessionals that are hijabi, um, but no teachers, which is really unfortunate. And um, we started out doing some, you know, leadership activities and talking and really more just identity based. So getting people to talk about identity and what it is, what it was about the school that wasn't working for them. And slowly um, started talking a lot about like sex ed and consent. So we created and we actually co-created our own um, sex ed curriculum that was based in the Quran and the Sunnah, which was really beautiful and so much fun because it was culturally affirming and not shaming. So we did that, um, and I, I continue to do that with my girls. Um, we also, I got them to come to the Capitol with me this year, and they got to hang out with some of their electeds. They've done accountability roundtables with um, Representative Omar and also with the Commissioner for Education in Minnesota. But throughout that, like I think for me, they they are everything that I want to do. Everything I do with them is what I want to do because it's this beautiful connection between my work on sexual violence because we're talking about consent and sex ed and my girls feel like open to talking to me about it because we have this kind of relationship that is very much like mentor slash sister slash I don't know what else. And we also are I'm making them commit to being engaged in civic life, right? Like this is about them. And as when they are not in those rooms where decisions are being made, people are making those decisions without them. We know this is true, but that still means it doesn't always mean that people feel welcome coming to those places. So when I went to the Capitol with them, like I opened doors and I made sure that people saw that this place was theirs. But yeah, that's, that's part of what I do. (laughs) And we do that with, um, obviously not just students. We do it with um, Muslim women of all ages, all backgrounds. And we want Muslim women to feel like their electeds are accountable to them. And we also want Muslim women to feel like they can step into leadership roles without asking for permission. But sometimes we all need a little bit of a nudge. So we'll, we'll push people to apply for positions that they don't think were made for them. Um, like, you know, for on their city councils, or on their school boards, um, we'll get people to run for office and we train them and we give them a community to rely on when they're you know going through the process as well. Mm-hmm. Are there any girls or women that you've worked with who you're particularly proud of in terms of the success that they've achieved and just watching their progress over time? Yes. Oh, my God. There's so many. I have a lot of favorites, but <laughs> I shouldn't. But when I first started teaching, God, I had a bunch and I'm trying to think of like who I should talk about. So actually, I have some notes up here from some of my favorite students. <laughs> um, and I keep them on my wall because whenever I'm like, today sucks. Everyone sucks. I hate the mayor. You know, I can like look up and I see that there are notes from my students. So one of the, one of them just says, I love you. And I'm so grateful for you. And it's from one of my students who started out the school year feeling really unsupported and feeling like she was not welcome at the school. And this was at a, a different school I used to work at. And I had just started at the school that year as well. So we were kind of like freshmen together <laughs> And slowly my office became like the student of color office and all of the students of color would just hang out there. They would come there during lunch and on breaks and it just became this fun place for them and a safe place where we could talk about what was going on. And now that student, she actually spoke at a press conference that I helped organize for Representative um, Omar and she talked about being sexually harassed at her workplace. And she was like, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to be on TV. I'm never going to be on the news. I'm never going to do this. And yet she like stepped up into this really beautiful thing because she was like, you know what? I need people to feel safe. And I need people to know that I'm a survivor and an ally. 
Um, and another one of my students, incredible young woman, she um, joined our Muslim women's group last year at Coma Park. And she is a part of a special ed program. And that program is led by a really racist white lady that I hate. <laughs> and so when uh, I started, it was actually after I had reported that same racist white lady <laughs> to the school because I hated her and she said awful things. She actually told that woman said to me that she thought all of her students would go on to work at McDonald's and that none of them wanted to go into any other kind of field and obviously making it sound wrong to be from a working class family and just all of these awful things. And she's white and she's talking about black and brown students. But now this student, she didn't let that shut her down. She was like, why would she say that about me? And why would she say this, you know, about all of us? So, and she's been the victim of several hate crimes at her school too, and um, is constantly targeted because of who she is. This year, she, you know, she started talking about being bullied, and she talked to her representative and her senator about being bullied as well. And she talked to Congresswoman Omar about it. <laughs> and it was really cool because she, she had these moments where she felt like she had no power. And then she was talking to people in power about what they could do to support her. Um, so she asked for, for example, for more funding for SPED programs. Um, she asked for, you know, just acceptance in a world that doesn't see her um, as the same. And just the other day, she came to our accountability roundtable with the Commissioner of Education for Minnesota. And she said that she wants to see more hijabi teachers and she wants to see that because she didn't have it until she had me and that it changed her life. So my students are amazing. <laughs> but yeah, there are so many more. I have a million stories, but the reason I do what I do is because not because my, my students don't need me. They'd be fine. Right. Like we all we're like we all made it. We're OK. But when you have that kind of support, the support that like I wish I had, mm -hmm. it changes the way you look at community care and it changes the way you look at self-care. Because I think that a lot of us are told that we are the only ones who can take care of ourselves. And that's absolutely not the case. And that's not what our cultures teach us. And our cultures aren't from here. They're not from here. Right. We rely on community to be OK. And that's what my girls do. And that's what I do with them, too, is that we say that if you're OK, I'm OK. And none of us, if, if one of us isn't OK, then none of us are. And we will support each other and fight for each other as long as we need to. And it's wild how simple it is to just say, all you have to do is ask for what you need. But even that is so difficult to teach. Anyway, you mentioned earlier that you've worked to advocate on behalf of survivors of sexual assault. And now... Minneapolis is officially home to the nation's first permanent memorial to survivors of sexual violence. How does it feel to finally have a physical space to honor survivors after working on this project for years? Yeah, I mean, the project itself started about five years ago. Um, my friend Sarah Super and I were sitting down and she was like, can you imagine if there was a memorial for survivors of sexual violence? And I'm like, you're insane. I mean, like, that's cool, but what, like, who would do that? And then we started going to park board meetings and we were shut down by all of the women on the park board, surprisingly, <laughs> and told time after time that there was no money for this, that there was no space for it, that nobody wanted it, nobody needed it. And now that it exists, Survivors are coming from all over to see it and feel supported because when you walk around, you see these dedication bricks, these bricks that were dedicated by people who donated to the memorial. And you read these notes of affirmation that tell you that you're not alone. And for me, it's, it's kind of like a sacred space that I didn't have before. And we have it now and we're the first in the country to have anything like it. And I think when I was sexually assaulted for the first time, I, I didn't think I had community. I didn't think there was anyone who cared, gave a damn about what happened to me. And when I met this group of people and our board at Break the Silence, um, I was told that wasn't true, that everything I thought about sexual violence and, you know, the aftermath was wrong, that I could live and breathe and have support that I needed. And I think that the memorial does a beautiful job of reminding people that. And I hope that it provides a safe space for other survivors too. And especially Muslim survivors, because we are silenced over and over again within our own communities, outside of our own communities. And so I did it for us. Mm -hmm. 
This reminds me something that I've always really admired about you is how open and honest you are in every aspect of your life, whether it's a one-on-one conversation like this or to all of your followers on social media. (laughs) So what are some of the additional barriers that you've had to overcome as a Muslim woman that you think has made it harder for you to communicate how you feel and be an advocate for so many important issues? Um, I made a face because it's been hard for me as a Muslim woman to be open because I think shame exists in our communities and in our cultures. And um, I remember the very first time I broke my silence. So I was afraid to break my silence. (laughs) Of course I was. I I think everyone who does is terrified of doing it, but I did it on Facebook. Like who does that? Who breaks their silence on Facebook? But I did it because it was the only place. I I just, I don't know. I guess I felt bold that day. (laughs) I don't know what was going on. Maybe too many people had called you asthma and you just like reached a breaking point. Exactly. Yep. That was totally it. So like immediately, I think within five minutes of the post being up, my parents called me and they were like, we're getting calls from all of your like aunts and uncles. They're saying, you said you got sexually assaulted. Are you telling people you got raped? What happened to you? Why would you do that? Why would you put it up? And I freaked out (laughs) and I I deleted my post. There were people who didn't believe me. I had cousins who like have like had this group chat going, talking about how I made it all up and none of it had actually happened to me and that I was like starved for attention or something. So that told me at that time, I was like, breaking my silence isn't doing anything for me. But I also remember feeling really powerful and like I was letting go of shame when I was doing it. And I think every single time that I'm speaking out or I'm sharing something that people don't normally share, whether it's about being sexually assaulted or it's about being a, like, honestly, every now and then suicidal person, (laughs) I'm being honest because I want us to let go of that shame. And that shame has held back so many Muslim women. And it isn't that I want us to feel like our cultures are backwards or anything, because I think this really is, it's just culture. Um, that tells women specifically that they can't talk about things that hurt them. I want us to feel like we can build community from these things. That's really what it is. It's really what it comes down to. A, I don't want to feel alone anymore when I talk about these things. And B, I don't want other people to feel alone either. Every single time I have shared something like from, you know, the bottom of my heart, deeply from my soul, something that's scary as hell to share, there have been dozens of people and especially Muslim women, especially black and brown women who have come to me and said, I'm, I'm in the same situation or Asma, me too. And this has been happening for years. And that's what tells me that there's power in sharing your truth and power in sharing the things that are really, really scary. Even when it feels like you're not going to have anybody, I found the most community after doing so. I'm so glad that you said that because I remember when after I first met you and I started following you on social media, I was so struck by how honest you were because at first it totally made me uncomfortable because also coming from a South Asian background, I was like, what is she doing? (laughs) Like, do people hate her for this? And it was that sort of discomfort that helped push me to realize this is actually really good and something for me to learn from. And it definitely made me feel less alone. And more recently, what I appreciated the most is how honest you were about how difficult it was to organize and provide community care, especially in the height of violence after George Floyd was murdered. And I feel like there were a lot of people struggling, but it also felt even worse to take time to take care of yourself because everything was just so bad. So I never directly reached out, but I'm telling you now that it meant a lot to me too, to, um, yeah, to see how honest you were about what you were going through. So, yeah, thank you for that. Um, But speaking of your social media presence, something that I've read on Twitter is the following quote. I personally think it's really cool how we all went from learning how to make banana bread to learning how to abolish the police in a matter of weeks. Does this sound familiar? It does. Uh, I don't know who wrote it, but they sound like (laughs) freaking... There's a genius right there. Do you not know them? I want to know them. (laughs) Literally the best thing I've read on the internet. (laughs) 
It was true. At the time, I was making a lot of banana bread. And then I stopped and I was like, how the heck do we, like, how do we like police precincts on fire? You know, like, how do we, how do we tear down this system? What are we going to do? Because right now I'm looking at my oven and it looks like it's not doing enough. I literally can no longer make banana bread without thinking about police abolition. I can't either. And you know what? The goal was accomplished. I also just want to be clear that the tweet that I just read, Asma wrote it. Just for anyone who... I did. I did. It was, you know what's funny is I remember when I wrote it, I was like, yo, that's so crazy. I was just thinking, I was like, what was I doing? Like a couple of weeks ago, I was making a lot of banana bread and I was like, damn, I make such good banana bread. And now I'm not doing any of that. So it was really like an acknowledgement that the world had changed for me. Mm -hmm. Had you thought much about abolition before you stopped making banana bread? I think when I first, I first started thinking about abolition in 2015, I remember I was at work and I had just found out that a man in my city had been shot and killed by the police and it was Jamar Clark. And um, I kept asking myself, like, what I should do, if I should go, if I should show up in person, um, is there a way that I can talk about it online? And I remember I thought of one of my students named Michael, and he was he was a favorite, <laughs> he was for sure a favorite, and he knew it. He took advantage of it. He was, like, the best 11-year-old ever, and I can't believe he's a human adult now. Um, but <laughs> I remember he wrote me a letter when he had first um, started coming to the program that I managed. And he said that he didn't see black men growing up around him. And he was afraid that he was going to be killed. So he said he needed to go to college and I needed to help him find a way. So when I was thinking about showing up or not showing up, I thought of Michael because I was like, this could have been, this could have been my kid. That's, that's my child. My students are mine. And the police don't care. Do you think they give a damn that I care about that kid, that I love that kid? No, they don't. So I showed up and then we held down the fourth police precinct for 17, 18 days until they shut it down. Um, They, you know, they literally like brought like tanks and things to to break it down. And um, I remember during that time was when I first really started reading about abolition because I, at that point I hadn't imagined a world without police just seemed like, something we were stuck with forever. Mm-hmm. And I think in the years that followed, I would think about it, be like, there's no way we can do it. And I think you lose hope in people power sometimes because of white supremacy. But I think this summer, a lot of it came back because people showed up in ways that they hadn't in a really long time. And I was so proud of our city for doing what it did, coming together and providing mutual aid and saying that this this too is a part of abolition. Like this support for one another is a part of abolition. So no, it was not my first time. It was just kind of a reawakening. And what are some of the ways in which people talking about abolition, especially in Minneapolis, has given you hope that a police-free future is possible? (sighs) That's a loaded question. (laughs) Um, I think that, of course, when you hear electeds talking about it in a way that they haven't before, it gives you hope because those are the people that can create policies to change what's happening. Um, so when I saw, you know, the city council first step up and then eventually take a huge step back in the beginning, I was hopeful and also was like, we need to keep pushing them. But I don't think we're pushing them in the same way that we were. And I think even when the charter amendment and stuff was going on, I thought, you know, we're making these calls, we're sending these emails, we're doing something. And that also like kind of fell flat on its face. What has given me hope is the moments when people needed mutual aid and there were things going on. Like I remember there was um, someone who called and I was getting a lot of calls and texts and DMs constantly (laughs) during that like month after George Floyd was murdered about people just needing support. And I would be able to find people who would provide security provide safe housing, provide food, provide diapers, provide anything people needed. And I was like, we have all of this here. We have all of it. We don't need them. And we had people, we had medics, right, on call. We had people showing up in minutes in a way that hadn't happened ever before. You ever heard of an ambulance getting North Minneapolis in minutes? No, never. And here, here we were with medics showing up in minutes. We had people patrolling the streets, protecting Black homes. So it was 
it wasn't just like, it wasn't anything people were saying. It was what people were doing that was giving me hope. It was just community filled with love. And it was hard. It was really, really hard, but it was a change. And I think it really opened people up to the idea of doing something on our own. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. There is a lot of reimagining that needs to be done, but People have already created systems of protection, safety, and care that works for their community, so we aren't even starting from scratch. But something I think about a lot is how much politicians impede the sort of progress that we're working towards, especially people on the Minneapolis Park Board and Mayor Jacob Fry. So, you mentioned that you hate Jake. I do. Please elaborate. Oh, God. (laughs) I have a problem with white men. I have a problem with white people. Okay, I'll just say it. I'm sorry I'm saying this on your podcast. People are going to listen and be like, well, good on white people. We hate white people. No, I have a problem with white people who don't recognize how much power they have and do zero things with it. There were so many times during not just the summer, just constantly where Jacob Fry acts like he can't do anything about things. He'll be like, well, what do you want me to do? That's, that's, my, that's my Jacob Fry voice. <laughs> that's not, that's not, my, my Jacob Fry voice is actually, let me be clear. I hate myself and I hate Minneapolis. That's who he is. And I think like this, he didn't take this job and it is a job. Okay. He didn't take this job because he loves Minneapolis. He took this job because he wants to be Senator someday. That's the reality. He he thought of it as a stepping stone. He does not give a damn about our city. What, he did a little marathon, ran a little bit, wore his short shorts, walked around, and decided he wanted to stay. And I'm like, bro, why didn't you go back home? Why did you have to stay? Who told you? You like sambusas? Figure out how to make them. Make them somewhere else, please. Okay? I just... And the same same thing goes for many people on the park board. It's like you're you committed to doing this. And I think the park board, honestly, like as much as I hate a lot of people on the park board, there are some commissioners who are doing a damn good job and doing their best. Like Londell, I love him. He is really trying. And I wish I wish that he had more support within the park board because if you see the kind of stuff he has to face within the park board and constantly be to- being told by like Meg Forney and Latricia Vita that he's not doing a good job. It sucks. It sucks being the only voice on the board who is listening to the people. But what bothers me most about these institutions is that they're set up for failure. They're set up to fail us. And I think that is because you can, you can say, I mean, I can say, say so many things about bureaucracy and about how, you know, nobody's trying hard enough, but even if they were trying their hardest, some of these people, I think that they couldn't create real change because these institutions weren't made to create real change. They're made to create like really incremental change and then congratulate themselves on it. And so I heard the other day that Jacob Fry is now providing like these tiny houses or tiny shelters for unhoused people months after people have been asking for something And he is being congratulated and people are like, oh my God, I love my mayor. Look at what he's doing. And I'm like, A, he could have done this forever ago. Homeless is not a new problem in Minneapolis. And beyond that, like this is not a long-term solution. And I just, I hate that he gets congratulated for the things that that he didn't do, frankly, and for doing the freaking bare minimum. Mm -hmm. You showing up and crying at George Floyd's casket did nothing for anyone. Like he is an embarrassment to our city. And I think he knows it. And I cannot wait to organize to get us a new mayor. So soon. Yeah. So excited. You said several things just now that remind me of how frustrating a lot of politicians can be, especially white politicians. They just want you to be patient and say, oh, change takes time, blah, blah, blah. They're incrementalists. And it's like... Like you said, homelessness is not a new problem. All of these issues have existed for decades. This isn't anything new. And it's just always the most frustrating thing to me when the people who have the most power to change things are always like, oh, like my hands are tied. Yes, that's what he does. And the okay, I know his staff. Okay, I know them. And they all are the same. So you would think that if you're someone who already knows that you have a hard time doing things when asked, you would hire a staff who is like pushing you to do better at the very least. 
well, I know his staff and they freaking suck. And if you're listening to this, you suck. <laughs> See, this is this is what I mean by I'm like so amazed by your honesty. My favorite part about talking smack to and about Jacob Fry is that every time I tweet about him, his staff members that I hate have to read it. It's literally their job. Okay. So you know they'll see it. I may or may not have thought they were cool at some time in my life, and now I don't. So it happens. Shameless plug for Usma's social media accounts. I do kind of live for her dragging Jacob Fry. Don't follow me. It's really bad for you. <laughs> Has anyone ever accused you of being too mean? Oh my god, all the time. And guess what? It's mostly white women. They're like, well, he's trying really hard, Asma. And um, don't you think you could be a little kinder? And it seems like you're like, this, ta- this is targeted harassment. And <laughs> I can't deal with it. Okay? I will not be told that your mayor, that you actually consider your mayor. Like, I, for, I don't have a mayor, okay? I, have, I don't have a mayor. I haven't had one for a long time. I am the mayor of Minneapolis. Shoot. I don't even live in Minneapolis anymore. <laughs> But I, yeah, I just, I can't handle how many people tell me and try to tone me down when I'm angry and have a right to be angry. And I think that's what white folks do too. And it's just like white mediocrity just shows up in so many effed up ways. And that's just one of them. Mm -hmm. I actually was thinking the other day about how it's always easiest to shit on white men they make it really easy. But then when I actually think about the people who have hurt me the most, it's always white women. Yeah. Yep. I agree. And they, God, I can say so many things right now. I think the hardest thing for me is that the, okay, so I don't have that many white people in my life. I'll be honest. But the ones that I do know that I don't like white people. Okay. And they work really hard to not be that white person. And when they are, I tell them they're being that white person. So. I, and I think that's on them, right? That's on them that they can't be more open to criticism when like they have, they have generations of genocide and like their grandpa, like owned slaves. Like, what do you want me to do with you? Do you, you want to be friends? Cool. Let's talk about it. Uh, yeah, I have a hard time with them. And I think what really bothers me is that when we talk about white women, like when I talked about Elizabeth Warren, for example, all these white women were like, oh my God. I can't believe you're talking about her. Like you're, you're standing against women. And I'm like, no, man, white women have been standing against me forever. I'm talking about how I feel. I'm talking about like real rage that I feel in my bones, that my ancestors felt in their bones. Like you don't get to tell me I can't be angry. But it, I think it is much harder to criticize white women publicly um, when they suck, unless they're like Republicans. It's really hard to criticize people who are like, quote unquote, on your side when they are doing stupid things because I'm going to be mean to everyone. (laughs) (laughs) What an easy fix. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you, you are so right. And that makes me think about something that I've been dealing with lately. I feel like every now and then you just kind of have to Marie Kondo your friends, especially like me, if you're in spaces dominated by white people a lot. (laughs) So I have been having a lot of conversations with white people in my life, and I've been trying to figure out at what point I want to put an effort or not in addressing the things that they say that are low-key racist. Do you have any advice on how to decide for yourself when it's like gone too far and it's like not worth your time anymore to have these conversations? I am probably not a good person to ask because I don't have a hard time cutting people off. (laughs) Um, I really admire that. I mean, I think I really, I I used to, and I think I do miss people that have hurt me, right? And I I think that we all struggle with that in, in different ways. But when someone is complicit in white supremacy and they don't want to recognize it and all they do is create harm for you. And then you have these like little sweet moments where they're fun and they go to brunch with you. That's not enough. Every relationship needs to be analyzed on the basis of like having an equal partnership. And if you don't feel like you have an equal partnership with someone, that's not a partnership. You got to drop it. And um, I think that's what I've had to do with a lot of the white folks in my life. Um, My best friend of (laughs) 
how many years, like 15 years, we haven't talked in forever because her dad is a white supremacist and she refused to acknowledge it and uh, made me feel bad about calling it out. (laughs) I couldn't do that. I need people who see my humanity and see my pain. If you don't think that my blood (laughs) comes out the same way as yours does, how are we ever going to see each other as human? Because I see you as real. I see your pain as real, right? But I, I can't, I can't have people in my life who, who don't truly love me. I won't go into whether or not I think my family loves me, but you know, (laughs) there is no, we don't have room for that. Okay. I have my parents if I want someone to tell me or make me feel sad. I'm just kidding. My parents love me. They're they're the best. But I have my sisters. My sisters are evil and very nice sometimes too. But yeah, you don't need that. You don't. Have you always been really good at cutting people out as soon as they become toxic to you? Or was that something that you had to learn over time? Hell no. I used to be a very, very nice person, believe it or not. (laughs) So nice that I could not tell people no. And I, I just wanted to make everyone feel happy. I used to be that person in school that like everyone was friends with because I was just like a nice, fun person to be around. And now I am not that. <laughs> I think there are a lot of people who really don't like me and I'm okay with it. And I don't think I was okay with that. I always wanted to be well liked. And I think that was like, I don't know misogyny and a bunch of different things that made me feel that way but now I don't care so I think if if that's something that you want you will have it just like keep dreaming about it (laughs) it'll happen well for anyone who thinks that you're too aggressive or too mean I like to consider that a them problem yes absolutely someone the other day was like I was talking about how people have become really bold online recently and I was also talking about myself but I but you know what I would say everything I say to these politicians online with their faces. Like I called this Republican who I hate, Mary Franzen, I think I mentioned her earlier. I think I called her a witch, but like not in a nice way, not a nice witch. I was like, it's too early. Halloween hasn't even come yet. Here's the wicked witch or something like that. And um, I would totally say that to her face because she sucks, right? So I think when people are saying you, anyone is too aggressive, like really consider are they just kind of being themselves more? Can you be okay with that? Those are some wise words. Maybe you should tweet that out. Uh, I have meaner <laughs> things on my mind. <laughs> um, that actually reminds me. I know that you no longer live in Minneapolis, but you have been so connected to that community for such a long time. What has it been like to coordinate mutual aid, to still be so involved in that community, but not be physically present in that space anymore? I moved to Chicago in July. Yeah, in July, uh, because I got married to this guy who has health insurance. And so I was like, you have health insurance. I think that's probably important. And it is. It's changed my life. I can't tell you how much, but it really has. I can't believe you got married. Like you actually married a man, like a full ass man. He's a person. It's really weird. Yeah, I'm I'm a really bad wife, though. I will say I was not prepared. And I think, you know, how like families will be like, what are you going to do? You're going to like leave your house in disarray and you're going to like not feed your husband. Yeah, that's exactly what I do. I do nothing. (laughs) I'm a really bad wife. I try sometimes, but usually I do not. So I moved to Minneapolis. I mean, I moved from Minneapolis in July. But during the pandemic and during the uprising, I couldn't leave the house anyways because my parents were both immunocompromised. And we ordered everything that we could get. And anytime anybody left the house, it was like mask, face shield, everything you can imagine because they we could we wanted to keep them safe. My mom was on a ventilator a few months ago and it was the scariest time of my life and I never want to feel that way again so we've been doing everything we can to keep her safe. So during that time when I was coordinating all this mutual aid I was doing it from home I was doing it from my phone and from my laptop and I think that I did a damn good job at it. So I think for folks that are feeling disconnected because you can't physically be, you know, coordinating and providing mutual aid, you can still do a lot. I felt like I was able to do things for my community from home. And right now, 
I'm still in the middle of a pandemic, so I haven't really gotten to know where I live much yet and the community here. And I'm okay with that. I think that's fine. But Minneapolis is still home to me. And I don't think I'm ever going to feel that kind of connection to any other city or any other place because it's, there's something about it. If you ever, mm-hmm. if you ever left Minneapolis and come back, you know what I mean? The people are kinder. They're more committed to the city. It's just, it's weird that when you go to a place when people really don't give a damn about their city or about their government and Minneapolis is one of those places where I feel like everyone knows who's representing them and people care. So, but it's, it's really hard being away. I don't think it's been the hardest part of this year has been leaving. Um, I cried a lot. <laughs> I think the first week uh, after I moved out of Minneapolis, I cried yeah, every single day, multiple times a day. My husband is like, are you okay? Are you going to be able to do this? And I was like, no, take me back. But we're surviving. We're okay. I totally know what you mean because Minneapolis taught me everything that I know about community, about organizing, about friendship in a way that I had never experienced before. And I moved there after I graduated college, but moved away from Minneapolis about a year ago. And similarly to you, a lot of the coordinating that I did over the summer, a lot of people didn't realize I wasn't in Minneapolis. Like I was back home in Wisconsin. (laughs) But similarly to you, like everything that I knew about like the city, like it was still useful information. And I was like, okay, like I can still use my knowledge. Thank God for the power of the internet because it's still possible to do so much. But Eventually, later on in the summer, I was able to go back for a couple of months. And yeah, that feeling of after being gone for a long time, it had been six months since I had gone back there. And I was just like, yep, this is home. It this is. feels good. It feels different. There is there is really something about Minneapolis. St. Paul sucks. I hate it. <laughs> but Minneapolis is just, it's a beauty. Has has beautiful things in it. And then some people that suck and should leave it. So. You're really going to piss off some St. Paul residents when they listen to this. I love my people from St. Paul. I make fun of Lutra all the time. And she like she says that I'm the only person allowed to make fun of St. Paul. But um, <laughs> no, it's it's all love. I went to school in St. Paul. And I think that's where the hate started. <laughs> <laughs> I think I did everything like, so begrudgingly that it made me feel a certain way. But Minneapolis has better food and like better people. And then there's some really great people in St. Paul too, but you know, overall. But like, if you have to choose one, I will say St. Paul's mayor is better. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's I, just a I fact. agree with that. That's, that's how people don't gun usually. They'll be like, look at our city council and our mayor. And I'm like, screw you. You suck. <laughs> You're like, that's why all of you need to move to Minneapolis and unseat all of the people we have right now. Exactly. If you really cared, right, you would do that. So <laughs> if you were committed. So you said that you moved because your husband was living in Chicago, you got married. I would love to hear about like how you two met. Oh my God. I don't know if I can tell the whole story, but maybe I will. I met my husband through a biodata, which is basically a marriage resume that's used in like the Indian subcontinent. <laughs> and yeah, and he didn't write his biodata, whereas I had like put time and effort into mine and I made it look like you wrote your own. Yeah, because I was trying to get married at some point, and then I stopped crying. Um, so at this point, when I met, when I saw his bio dad, it was at a point in my life where I was like, I hate men, I'm never getting married. But then I saw him, and I was like, okay, maybe, I don't know, he's kind of cute, we'll see. But in his bio data, there is a section that is racist and colorist and awful, and it says skin tone or skin color, and it said, very fair, okay, very fair. And I remember reading that and being like, there is no way a man would write this like for himself. Mm -hmm. Of course, I think his mom or somebody, his aunt or somebody wrote it. But I remember in our first conversation, he was like telling me about himself. And I was like, so what do you do? And blah, blah, blah. And he was like, oh, I used to play football in college. I think I could have gotten like a small time scholarship. And I was like, oh, did you get a scholarship for being very fair? (laughs) And he was like, what? So it started out like that. I was sure that I was. Why am I not surprised, like, at all? And yeah. It, he was like, who is this person? <laughs> How dare she talk to me like this? But I think 
Yeah. So we met, I think a week or so after we started texting or something after. So by that, it happened. My brother-in-law knew him through basketball. They play basketball together. And, um, he sent me his, or he sent one of us got somebody's number. He texted me first, blah, blah, blah. And then I met him in person. And my sister was like, you have to wear a dress to meet him. And I was like, absolutely not. And then I cried a lot. And then I wore a dress. (laughs) (laughs) And when I met him, I was like, so what do you like to do? And I was trying to make him as uncomfortable as possible because I wanted this to go down in history as like the most awkward thing that had happened to him ever. Cause I was convinced when I saw him, I was like, Nope, probably not. It wasn't that he wasn't good looking or anything. It was just like, he looked too put together and I didn't like it. Cause he was really <laughs> like, just like buttoned up. Like rigid. And figuratively. He was just like, yeah, he was, he felt he looked rigid and he was acting just too uptight. And so I was trying to make him uncomfortable. And I was like, so like, what kind of drugs do you do? And he was like, I don't do any. And he's like, look down. And this is in front of people. Okay. Because we're, we're, we were being chaperoned. So his cousin was there. My brother and sister were there. My sister is looking for my brother-in-law, my sister, and my sister's looking at me like, I'm going to murder you. So we take like a samosa and chai break. And she takes me to the other room. I'm, like, I'm going to kill you. You need to stop. I was like, okay. And I came back out and I was like, so sorry, guys. Eventually, so that night, I remember I texted him and I was like, hey, I'm sorry. My sister pissed me off. I did not mean to like hate um, you or your life or make you feel that uncomfortable. Let's go smoke together or something. So we smoked Shisha together and um, we like kind of told each other our life stories. And then we did it again the next night. And I remember we were like sitting at this like Shisha spot. He was sitting like 10 feet away from me and he he was telling me more about his life and he told me things that he had never told anyone. And I was like, I love him. I'm going to marry him. (laughs) (laughs) And um, yeah. And then his family absolutely hated me (laughs) because I am who I am. And they're a very much like conservative family and my family's, you know, we're we're very normal people. (laughs) And uh, yeah, they didn't like that. So I love how your like definitions for families are conservative or normal. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, conservative or normal. But they were very conservative. They were like, she has a job in politics. She does this. She talks a lot. I don't know what it was. But yeah, they hated me. Oh, yeah. And I was like, not pretty enough and all these things. But yeah, eventually, four years later, we forced everyone to let us get married in my house. (laughs) So we did it. It took a really long time and I don't recommend, uh, I don't recommend, I don't know what I don't recommend. (laughs) It was really hard. It was honestly like the longest four years of my life because his family hated me so much, but now they're really nice to me. So I guess I'm doing something right. Look at that. For all of your haters, this is proof that anyone can come around. And it's proof that anyone can love me if they try hard enough. (laughs) They must be trying pretty hard. Anyway. (laughs) So you've done a lot of work in organizing, community advocacy spaces, and have talked a little bit about mutual aid. Can you tell listeners what some concrete ways are that they can continue supporting community even when electoral politics might not have the answer. In fact, it usually doesn't. Yeah. I mean, I think you answered it right there. They never have had the answer. Um, Our politicians, depending on which politicians we're talking about, there are some politicians in Minneapolis that I really love. Like you'll see Aisha Gomez stepping up constantly for community. You'll see Ilhan doing that. You see, um, I mentioned Londell earlier doing that. You see Angela Conley doing that. Like look to those people, but also know that they can't always have the answers either. And I think the answer is are within community and that this mutual aid that people have been doing, no matter who wins any office this election cycle, we still have to be there fighting for each other. We still have to be there like willing to put our lives on the line to make sure that other people in our neighborhoods are safe. Because that's what, honestly, that's what white supremacists are probably doing. They're, they're making, they're trying to make sure that none of us have space, that none of us feel safe. And we need to remind each other that we will be as long as, you know, we're connected. And I think it's going to be really hard regardless of who wins presidential down to 
Senate, all, all of these different things. I mean, my hope was always that we would flip the Minnesota Senate and not have to deal with Limmer and Kazalka anymore ever. <laughs> but I want us to know that no matter what happens this election cycle, that there are still people in our lives that we have to show up for. In the same way, I remember I tweeted something the other day that was because I was thinking about how sad I would be, you know, if Trump wins again. So I was thinking about regardless of who gets elected to become president, to join our Senate, any of these things, I still have my babies that I'm worried about. I have my students, I have my family. We all have people that we need to be thinking about. And if you're doing mutual aid, you still have those people that you've been showing up for. They're still going to be there. Do you think homelessness is going to end because Joe Biden becomes president? Hell no. Like that's not what's going to happen. We still need people showing up and we don't need everyone to enter politics and to believe that, you know, politics are the answer because they aren't. I think mutual aid is the answer. I think that us being there for each other in this really radical way is the answer. And that's how we're going to push our communities and our states and eventually, hopefully, our country into a place where we rely on people rather than these figureheads. I agree. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Do you have any final thoughts that you want to share with listeners? Oh, don't get married unless you're promised health insurance. Or if you have health insurance, you like want to help someone out. That'd be really cool too. Use your privilege. Love it. Don't move in the middle of a pandemic. It really sucks. <laughs> and more than anything, ugh, I don't have more than anything. I think one thing I will say is that social media can be a tool to bring you a lot of joy and laughs and make you feel connected to people. And it can also make you feel really incredibly alone. I learned, honestly, too late in life, aka a few weeks ago, that all of my social media accounts were making me feel more alone than anything. And I took a break. And that break felt healthy. It felt good. It felt like I was entering a space of wellness and safety that I hadn't had in a long time. So take your breaks and know that all of the things and the people will be there when you get back and that they're also not the answer. That like no one thing that you rely on is the answer. And as much as I love dunking on Jacob Fry and other white politicians that I hate, and like that is like a source of comfort and catharsis for me, that is still not the answer. At the end of the day, like we need actual mental health support and we need community support, as I keep saying. But real community happens when you stay connected. And I think the best way to do that is through making an effort and trying and finding your people. And I think I found so many of my people through mutual aid. If you're a fan of Gen BIPOC, subscribe to us on your podcast app. Share this episode with your friends and family and give us a rating or leave a review for future listeners. And if you or someone you know wants to share their story on this podcast, don't hesitate to reach out. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at GenBIPOCPod and visit GenBIPOCPod.com to stream more episodes and provide feedback. We'd love to hear from you.